find Nehemiah. I don't know on what page. Uh, but if you got a page number, shout it to your neighbor, or don't shout it, whisper it to your neighbor. Uh, and it is in the Old Testament. Uh, so as you're turning there, just going to get a running start for our time. And I wonder if you remember this date. July 8th, 2010. July 8th, 2010. I still remember where I was on July 8th, 2010. I was eating at Damon's Restaurant with my baseball teammates when I heard the news. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. And I was just thinking, how, how could this happen? After how close we've been, I just, I heard this news. I watched all of our potential crumble before me, and we, I just knew we would never be the same. July 8th, 2010. LeBron James made his decision to take his talents to South Beach. He would no longer play for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He would play for the Miami Heat. Some people lit his jerseys on fire. I stuffed all of my LeBron James paraphernalia in the corner of my closet, and I fully intended never to set eyes on it again. I was like Ron Burgundy, trapped inside of a glass case of emotions. And all this, all this reaction came from a 25-year-old's decision to change basketball teams. You know, our reactions can reveal how invested we are in something or someone. Reactions to the decision revealed that lots of people were deeply, probably unhealthily invested in the success of a basketball team. And, you know, because we tend to wrap ourselves too much into something, we have a tendency also then to overcompensate. And then we will just keep our distance. We say we won't invest too deeply, so then when it goes wrong, we won't get hurt too badly. But, friends, our problem isn't the depth of our investments. Our problem is that we invest in the wrong things. Today, we get introduced to Nehemiah. And we are going to see Nehemiah's depth of investment. And we'll see that Nehemiah invests in the right way, in the right things. He invests in the glory of God's name and the welfare of God's people. And from Nehemiah 1, just today in the word, we will learn that God remains sovereign and faithful during the distress of his people. And this propels us to honest prayer and bold action. So if you follow along as I read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Keslev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and, who keep, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, 
confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Two sections of our time will correspond to the two paragraphs of our passage. First, we'll look at Nehemiah's situation. Verses 1 to 3, we'll ask some questions about it. And second, we'll look at Nehemiah's prayer. Verses 4 to 11, we'll notice the different components of it. And I pray that throughout our time, that God works in us to be like Nehemiah, to care about the right things, and to care about the right things in the right way. So, section number one, Nehemiah's situation. Just dive right in. You say, good, how are you? How many times have you heard that? Good, how are you? This is not a Seinfeld routine on the perils of small talk. Uh, but when we hear something besides that response of good, how are you? Something besides that, our antennas go up a little bit. It catches our attention. If someone, if you ask someone how are they doing and they don't respond, good, how are you? Well, something must really be off. That's what Nehemiah hears from his brother Hanani. Hanani comes from southern Israel all the, way, all the way to what would have been southwestern Iran. And Nehemiah asks his brother, okay, how are things going? And Nehemiah, and Hanani pulls no punches. They aren't going great, Nehemiah. Things are awful. And so you can insert a record scratch here and press pause on the entire scene and hear the narrator ask, okay, how did we get here? First question to ask about Nehemiah's situation. How did we get here? A little bit of an overview. I don't know how much Bible background you have, but this is the story leading up to this point. God called his people into a nation, Israel. Israel was meant to represent God to the nations around them. But they repeatedly failed to do that. Instead of influencing the nations around them, the nations around them influenced them. The nations didn't serve the true one true God. Israel ended up serving the nation's gods. And that kept happening and happening and happening. Even when Israel became a monarchy, when it became a kingdom, it went on so long that this monarchy was split into two as a result of God's judgment into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. But even this split was not enough to wake up Israel they continue to rebel against God's commandments, and they continue to forsake God in order to serve other gods. And so eventually, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to take over the northern kingdom of Israel and bring them into exile. 
And then a little later on, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to take over the southern kingdom of Israel, often called Judah. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem's walls, and they took people away from their homes and into foreign lands, into exile. And as you can imagine, at this point in Israel's history, this is a time of anguish. They lost their homes. They lost the place that God gave to them. They lost the place that God had literally set aside for them. They lost it. And as we'll see, it's a time of anguish even more so because so many understood like Nehemiah understood that this was their fault. And so we just get a little peek into the anguish in Psalm 137 where it says, by the waters of Babylon, we wept. But hope for restoration begins when a new empire comes to power, the empire of Persia. The Persian Empire just had a much laxer policy toward other religions because the Persian Empire, they wanted favor from all the possible gods that they could get. So they sent the Jewish people, they said, you guys can go back to your land of Israel. And so that story began with the book of Ezra, which comes right before Nehemiah. King Cyrus of Persia permitted the uh, Jewish exiles to return. He recommissioned the building of the temple in Jerusalem And he recommissioned and reestablished the laws of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so here it is Ezra and Nehemiah, one continuous story. And the authors of these books often tell readers when certain events happened. And when we put their timeline together, we can see in verses 1 to 3 of Nehemiah 1 that the book of Nehemiah begins about 13 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem. So this would be the year 445 B.C. And Nehemiah, we see in these first three verses, was in the winter capital of the Persian Empire, a city called Susa. And that he was in the capital is just a little hint that Nehemiah ascended the ranks of the Persian Empire, even though he was in exile. We'll see more about that later on in the passage. So how do we get here Hanani's report to his brother that things are going awful in Jerusalem, it likely corresponds to what happened back in Ezra chapter 4. In that chapter, the Persian king was responding to misleading reports. You see, not everybody was happy that the Jewish people returned back to their land. There are some people, when they got back and they started to rebuild things, they, they sent notes to the king saying, these people, don't you know, these people come from an unruly and stubborn heritage, and you cannot let these people get back to full strength. And the king bought it. These opposers were successful in blocking the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so this is how we get here to Hanani's report in verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now we can ask a second question about Nehemiah's situation. Why was this such a big deal? Why was this such a big deal? You know, part of understanding the Bible or any story for that matter is feeling the weight of the plot. The weight of the crisis. And we have to acknowledge that we just don't live in the same world as Nehemiah did. There are aspects of our experiences, of our culture, even of the place we live in, that are literally miles away from Nehemiah's world. And so, we have to slow down. 
slow down in order to sense how this crisis would weigh on this group of people. Now, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think many of us know the reality of living in a place that has a daily physical threat. You know, most of us probably don't know what it's like to live in a place where you are surrounded by enemies. But there are Christians still who know this. There are places around the world where Christians live like this, places like Afghanistan and Somalia, parts of India and China and more. Places where you always have to look over your shoulder. Places where you are careful about making your true identity known. Places where you witness churches shut down. Places, even, where you witness churches burnt down. Places where you witness professing Christians go to prison for their faith. And places where you witness professing Christians be killed for their faith. No, most of us probably don't know what it's like to live in a place like that. We, wow, so we might not be able to relate entirely to the exile situation. But all of us have had moments in our lives when we feel pressed in on every side, when we feel trapped and helpless, when we feel like Hanani's report says, in great trouble and shame. This was the state of Jerusalem. This was the situation that weighed on them. And Hanani and Nehemiah understood that there was no obstacle in front of Jerusalem's hostile enemies. There was no king who said, don't mess with Jerusalem. There were no walls to keep out these hostile enemies. But the situation would have weighed on them even more than just that. It's not just that Jerusalem was defenseless. It's not just that Jerusalem was alone. It's that Jerusalem was on the brink of extinction. That's why it weighed on them. And so you can imagine that the question going through their heads at this point, it'll come out in Nehemiah's prayer. You can imagine him saying, God, we've already been spread throughout the world and you've brought us back. But God, did you bring us back just so that we could be obliterated? So this is why it was such a big deal. It brings us to the third question about Nehemiah's situation. What do we see of Nehemiah's heart? What do we see of Nehemiah's heart? Well, we see that Nehemiah asked about the exiles and he asked about Jerusalem. But we also see Nehemiah didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived thousands of miles away. He was in Susa, one of Persia's capitals. And you will see, he's doing just fine in Susa. He hung out with the king. He's at the highest level of society. I wonder, maybe one of you has one of these. Uh, has anybody seen the bumper stickers that say something like, I'd rather be fishing? Or, I'd rather be in Disney? Or I'd rather be at the beach or fill in the blank. Nehemiah's bumper sticker might have been, you know, my heart, my, I am in Susa, but my heart is in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was in a foreign land, but his heart was in his true home. He is the model exile. He remembered his true home. And so we might picture how we would have reacted to Hanani's report if we were in Nehemiah's shoes. Maybe we would have said something like this, man, Hanani, like, that stinks. I feel awful for those people there. But you know, Hanani, I got to be honest with you, I got a lot of stuff going on. And I, 
you know, maybe I can, I'll donate some money. You know, I don't know how much you need. I'm willing to give some money to you, but, you know, I have enough on my plate here. I have enough to worry about. And I don't want to be harsh. It it just, Hanani, to be honest, it sounds like too big of a problem for me to make any significant impact on it. And so, again, you know, maybe, Hanani, it's just time to move on from Jerusalem. It was nice while it lasted, but just look at me. We can make a good life apart in other places, apart from Jerusalem. That wasn't how Nehemiah reacted. Nehemiah didn't forget who he was. Nehemiah enjoyed good things, but he did not forget the best thing, God himself. And scripture commends the same faithful exile heart that Nehemiah had. If you want to read more about that, meditate this week on Hebrews chapter 11, 1 Peter chapter 1. But the question for us this morning, friends, do you have an exile's heart? Do you have an exile's heart? Here is a test. What concerns you the most? What occupies your mind? What fills your prayers? What worries you? Is it just your own problems? Now, I want to be careful because God invites us to pray about anything. He tells us to cast all of our burdens on him. At the same time, what we're saying here is that our concerns should have a bit of priority and perspective. I'm reminded of Christ's words from Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The faithful exile's heart, the one that Nehemiah had, seeks first the kingdom of God. Now, Nehemiah's situation was one of anguish and distress. We saw how we got there. We saw why it was such a big deal. And we caught even a little glimpse into Nehemiah's heart in it. But we get a full display of Nehemiah's heart in the second section of our time, Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer teaches us how to pray in distress, and it reminds us of who God is in the midst of distress. And we can distill it to at least six different actions. And in turn, these six different actions will teach us how to pray. It's a model prayer. So let's go through it, all right? Six different actions in Nehemiah's prayer. How do we pray? All right, here we go. I'm ready. What do you got for me? How do we pray? Action number one. Sit. It's anticlimactic, isn't it? But this is how Nehemiah's prayer begins. He records none of his words. He says he just sat, wept, fasted, and prayed. And you know it says he did this for days. Doesn't this go against all of our cravings for instant results and instant action? If we were counseling Nehemiah, we might say, Nehemiah, just do something. But Nehemiah doesn't give in to those cravings. He sits. You know, Job's friends started off similarly. They started off actually really well. Job chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Job's friends sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. 
Like us, Job's friends got in trouble when they finally opened their mouths. Friends, we need more sitting. We need slowness. Nehemiah wasn't in a hurry. And I wonder what Nehemiah's prayers were like before he wrote them down. I bet it was Genesis 32 style, Jacob and God just wrestling through prayer. We need to slow down, sit, weep, wrestle through prayer. And friends, that is not inaction. Doing this is often the first step toward meaningful prayer and substantive action. And I was reminded of this uh, this past week. This past week marks uh, a year since the killing of George Floyd. Uh, and I was listening to one radio program. They interviewed Michelle Lang Raymond. She is a, a black lay leader in a church in Portland. And I think the first time she saw the, the video of, of George Floyd being killed, uh, she, she, watched, she was watching it with a white pastor. Uh, and she said that this man just cried. That the way she described it was that he fell apart. And eventually he just said to her, I, I just don't know what to do. And she said to him, that's it right there. That's it. That's where you have to start. That you have to be broken by what's happened. Or else what you do next won't be significant. So we sit. Now that Nehemiah has felt the weight of his situation, now that he has wrestled in prayer, what does he do next? Here's a fork in the road, friends. We often choose the way that we shouldn't go. We, it, what we do next, we often just look to ourselves. We go inward. We lay paralyzed in self-pity and in fear. But God wants a better way for us. I'm reminded of Hosea 7, verse 14, where God tells Israel, They do not cry to me from the hearts, but they wail upon their beds. Nehemiah goes the better way. First he sits, then he looks up. He does not cry on his bed, he cries to his God. And what does he say? Notice, he doesn't make any requests yet. There are no, there are no requests here. Nehemiah does some theology. He stares at God and he praises God. He stares at God and he sees how God's character speaks to his distress. Nehemiah stares at God. He looks up. He sees the God who is great and awesome. The God who inspires awe. The God who is the God of wonders. The only self-sufficient one. The one who spoke and made the stars and the oceans and the creatures. You remember God's words to Job. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Nehemiah looks up. He looks up and sees the great and awesome God. He looks up and sees the faithful and loving God. This God can be trusted. This is the one who keeps his promises through thick and thin. Psalm 36, 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Nehemiah looks up, and this is what he sees. God is great, 
and God is good. If God was just great, we might be amazed by him, but we sure as heck couldn't trust him, and we definitely could not approach him. If God is just good, we might be able to confide in him, but we could not be confident that he could do anything about us. Our sure foundation is this, the same as Nehemiah's. God is great and God is good. So friends, when we look up, we orient ourselves. We get our bearings. When we look up, we decide that the first step we're going to take is not to look at our stress, but to look at our God. Next action of Nehemiah's prayer, Edwin at Yamauchi captures well what Nehemiah does next. See, verses 6 to 7, it's just a logical next step. We cannot take a true look at God's awesomeness without being confronted by our own sinfulness. We cannot take a true look at God's awesomeness and not be confronted by our own sinfulness. See, where God has kept the covenant through thick and thin, Nehemiah and all God's people have broken the covenant at every step. And so Nehemiah doesn't assume that God owes him anything, that God owes him a hearing. He asked God to hear him, and he asked God to hear him repeatedly, persistently. Nehemiah doesn't place himself above other people. No, he confesses his own sin. Nehemiah humbles himself. Because Nehemiah knows the truth that sin keeps us from, at a distance from God. You probably know this verse. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We see this in our relationships, don't we? What happens when we aren't open and honest with each other? What happens when we conceal things from each other? What happens when we're angry? Tension enters in. Joy exits out. It's the same thing with God. To be near God takes getting away from sin. And Nehemiah understood this. This is my way of illustration. All right, somebody's asking you for dinner, asking you over for dinner. What's the polite question to ask when someone does that? Yeah, what can I bring? Can I bring something? You know, I don't know what our motives in there are in that. Uh, maybe the motive is I just want to contribute. I want to help out. You're doing a lot of work. Maybe it's a pure motive. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's a little bit of a mixed motive in there too. You don't really care that much about contributing to the meal. You just care how you will look to the host. And maybe the host one-ups your politeness and they dish this to you in return. Don't bring anything. Just bring yourself. We often treat our relationship with God like this. What can I bring, God? We look for something to offer. God, how about this? God, how about I bring a side of good deeds and charity sprinkled with some tasty self-righteousness? Nehemiah knows he cannot bring anything to God. All he has to offer is baked in the oven of sin, tainted by self-serving motives and past rebellions. Friends, may we always go to the great and good God with the empty hands of faith. Even in distress, Nehemiah knows he is not innocent. May we always humble ourselves before God and confess the truth 
about ourselves. May we join the old hymn and say, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to Christ's cross we cling. So speaking of clinging, where does Nehemiah go from here? Next action is to cling. His only hope is if God has mercy. The only way forward is if God does not treat Nehemiah like Nehemiah deserves. So friends, the bad news when we realize the truth about ourselves is that we are way worse than we ever realized. But the good news is that God is better than we ever expected. Nehemiah knows that God is merciful. He knows it from God's word. So the next step of his prayer is to cling to God and to cling to God's promises. Nehemiah, we see in verses 8 and 9, he quotes from various places in the book of Deuteronomy. He understands that the exile happened in fulfillment of God's warning. So you see, God cannot be indifferent to sin or else he would compromise his goodness. But God has mercy, and Nehemiah knows this. It's God's merciful promise to restore the exiles that invites Nehemiah to pray. So we can return to our party metaphor, right? We say, Nehemiah comes empty hands to this party. He doesn't have anything to bring. But you know what? Nehemiah is still invited to this party. And that is beautiful good news, isn't it? I pray that the mercy of God would land on each one of us like that. It's the only way it will land on us, is when we realize, I have nothing to offer, and yet God still invites me to come. I want you to zoom in on verse 9, the first part of it, because it's really important. And I want you to see the order of the actions. Nehemiah, the word says that we return to God and then keep God's commandments. That's really important. Because when we realize the truth about ourselves, one thing we could be tempted to do is we could be tempted first to clean ourselves up and say, all right, God, I'm going to get my life in order, and then I will get back to you. But friend, you can never do that. We say, bring your mess to Christ. And then, experiencing forgiveness and with his power, you walk in a new way. Friend, you need to do this today. Bring your mess to Christ. Be forgiven and walk in a new way. Cling to the promises of mercy like Nehemiah did. You can't cling to these promises if you don't know them. One of my favorites, we've been talking about it in the men's and women's groups, is John 10, 37. Consider this just unequivocal promise of mercy. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never cast out. So we're finally entering the territory of what Nehemiah actually asked for in prayer. It's taken a while for us to get here, hasn't it? Here we see his appeal. It appears that Nehemiah, in these verses 10 and 11, he's preparing to have a meeting the same day, an important meeting with an important man. If you look at verse 11, it says, give me success today. It says, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And we learn that this man is none other than the king of a vast empire. So what's been going on is Nehemiah has just looked up at the great and awesome God for so long that now he sees this powerful king as just a mere man. But in Nehemiah's appeal, I want you to notice his motives, the heart behind it. Again, Nehemiah, he's concerned about the right things in the right way. Verse 10, Nehemiah's concern is the welfare of God's people. Basically, what he's saying is, God, you got these people here. 
don't stop now. In verse 11, Nehemiah's concern is the honor of God's name. Look at how he describes himself and others. He is God's servant who delights, delights to fear his name. These are Nehemiah's motives, his concerns. God's people, God's name. Ask God to make these your passions. God's people, God's name. And with these at the foundation, they will make us pray good prayers. Now, last step is that Nehemiah looks ahead. It's like Nehemiah says amen in verse 11. And then he collects himself and he opens his eyes and asks, all right, where am I? Where has God placed me? He is praying. It's like he says, I am the king's personal taste tester. That's what the cupbearer would basically do. I'm the guy who makes sure the king doesn't get poisoned. The king trusts me. God's placed me here, and I need to talk to the king. So notice the pattern. Nehemiah's big prayer is going to prepare him for big action. May we follow that same pattern in our lives. His big prayer will prepare him for big action. So he looks to God. He humbles himself before God. He clings to God's promises of mercy. He appeals based on God's name and and the good of God's people. And then Nehemiah looks ahead to what God is calling him to do. Friends, we want to be like Nehemiah. Look ahead. Pray big prayers and look ahead to where God has placed us and called us to do. But as we close, as just we wrap up this sermon, it would be inadequate for us just to say, go be like Nehemiah. Because we need a little more than that. In fact, we need a lot more than that. We don't just want to be like Nehemiah. We have to say we need a Nehemiah. We are like the exiles in Jerusalem. We are vulnerable. We are defenseless. And friends, we are guilty. Someone must stand in the breach on our behalf or we will be obliterated. Friends, Nehemiah is a shadow of Christ. Jesus has the same heart for God's people and God's name. Jesus sees our distress. And yes, it's distress of our own making. It's distress that he has nothing to do with. But Jesus enters in and his heart is moved. He delivers us from danger. He goes to the Father on our behalf. And you know what? He doesn't confess his sin. He appeals to his perfect life. Where we have broken the covenant, Jesus kept the covenant perfectly. And then Jesus says, I will take what they deserve. Let me be obliterated. And then we cling to Jesus alone. And Jesus does this not just for those who are in Jerusalem, but those who are from every nation. And so, friends, we say, be like Nehemiah and look ahead to the greater you are the the great and gracious God and we are are weak helpless, vile and our only hope is if you have mercy, you treat us like we don't deserve and we rejoice that you do we have nothing to offer we simply claim your grace and we thank you Jesus that you lived the, the life we didn't live 
but that your life can, can be our life, can be credited to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you took the punishment we deserved and we cling to you. Help each person here cling to you. Have you as their passion, have you as their foundation and shape our hearts to, to have the same concerns that you have. Your people and the glory of your name and will we pray like it. So we ask all this for your glory and through the name of Jesus.